Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 46. And as I've done the last couple of weeks, I will keep reminding you that I'm working on a podcast episode about balancing family, career and triathlon. So I'm looking for members of the audience to share advice and uh, share success stories of how you have successfully managed to find this balance and and uh, with that be still be a successful triathlete while you are managing to do all the other things that you have on your plate. So uh, the exact format and structure is not quite set in stone yet. It could be that we do a short interview or it could be that you just send in a voicemail. Either way, what I'm looking for right now is for you to just send, raise your hand and send an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. And uh, you can let me know that you are interested in participating. It uh, doesn't have to be a big, long contribution, but just something short and simple and uh, that will really help the audience out and help me as well because uh, well the one thing that I don't have is I don't have kids so I can't speak from experience when when it comes to how to uh, manage uh, that sort of thing into the whole equation and that's quite a big part of the the equation so I'm really relying on you guys to uh, to help me out here so uh, looking forward to your emails let me know that you're interested and I'll send you more details later. Big thanks before we go to the questions to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They have a free online sweat test that will help you find what uh, your sweat rate is and what your sweat sodium content is. Because the fact is that your sweat sodium content may vary by something like tenfold uh, from one person to another. So if you rely just on what the standard amount in a in a sports drink is, then you might not be getting enough sodium for what you need. But there are easy signs actually to tell what roughly how much sodium you may need. And Precision Hydration's uh, online quiz is designed to help you find out just how much that is. And it's free and it's simple to take. It's just 10 questions that you can take very quickly. And that will give you an idea and actually a very specific idea, a specific plan for how to use hydration and electrolytes in your next race. And if you want to shop Precision Hydration's products, you can use until the end of August only the promo code DATTRAFLONSHOW20 to get 20% off your entire order. And if you are a first-time user of Precision Hydration products, you can use the first purchase only code DATTRAFLONSHOW, all in word, all caps, and that will give you your first box or tube for free. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. If you're looking for anything in the categories of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, buoyancy shorts, goggles, or any kind of eyewear, whether it be performance sunglasses for your sporting activities, or even just stylish uh, sunglasses for casual streetwear, or prescription glasses, which they now have as well, you should check them out. They have all of these things in their product lines, and you can get 20% off your order with the promo code TTS, all caps. So let's get into today's questions. And uh, the first one is from Michael in Indiana, United States, who writes, Hi, Michael. I love the podcast. It is nice to hear from a coach 
slash Treflit that seems to value observable data to smooth out fads in current training philosophy. It can be hard to separate what is real and what is hype. And I thank you for the time you spent trying to do just that. Uh, that wasn't the question, but <coughs> excuse me, that wasn't the question. But thank you, Michael, for uh, those words. And the question is, uh, being new to intervals, I have a question about the recovery portion of an interval. When recovering between intervals, is the idea to get heart rate below a value as quickly as possible, thus getting the most time in recovery? Or is it better to start the next work interval after a specific recovery time has expired, no matter how much recovery has been experienced by measuring heart rate or RPE? As an example, will I finish a zone 5 interval and then immediately walk uh, to coax my heart rate down, and then start the next interval once a target value, time, or heart rate beats per minute has been reached? Or will I finish a zone 5 interval and then jog for a specific time and then starting the next interval with a potentially higher heart rate? All right, Michael, that is a great question. And it really, well, it's kind of simple, but it can also get complicated if we go into the real nitty-gritty. But I think that for most intents and purposes, we can keep things simple. Because really, the tiny nuances to the answer of this question, they really don't make much of a difference in the big picture of things. And uh, and if they do, we don't really know exactly what is the right answer, uh, I guess. So what you and all the listeners that might have the same question have to ask yourselves uh, is is this what is the purpose of the workout and that will then give you some specific guidelines for what your recovery interval roughly should consist of and uh, what it should be so uh, if the purpose of the workout is vo2 max development then it's going to be something if it's lactate steady state development it's going to be something else lactate shuttling race specificity muscular endurance there are all sorts of, of workouts and depending on what the purpose is, is it physiological development, is it uh, some sort of specificity or a race simulation that might also of course have a big impact on what the rest du- duration is going to be. So let's use your example here with your zone 5 or VO2 max intervals. Uh, the purpose here is uh, probably just building the engine, uh, so making you fitter by improving your aerobic capacity. And uh, what matters here isn't really what's going on in the recovery intervals at all but it's what's going on in the work intervals so put simply you just need to spend as much time as possible at an oxygen utilization of vo2 that is close to maximum so vo2 max and that's it this means that uh, walking or standing is okay in your rest intervals if that's what it takes for you to hit the right intensity, the required intensity, in all the intervals that you have throughout the workout and accumulate that as time at VO2 max or at close to VO2 max. If you can jog the recovery intervals, however, then that will potentially keep your oxygen utilization more elevated through the rest intervals compared to walking and standing in the rest intervals. intervals. And that means that you will reach that level close to your VO2 max earlier on in the following interval. So actually, this could be preferable if you can manage it. As And that means that if you can still hit all the, all the work intervals at the required intensity. So do them hard enough and not fade towards the end of the workout. Because then, since you are starting at a slightly elevated VO2, you will reach 
uh, you will reach that high level of VO2, close to VO2 max earlier in many of the intervals that you're doing, which means that you'll accumulate more time at an intensity close to VO2 max, which is the purpose here. No matter what you do, if the rest interval is way too short, then you'll fail to hit the required intensity at some point in this workout. It's simple as that, and it will not be as effective as it could have been if you only do six intervals instead of 10 intervals, for example. On the flip side, if it's way too long, then your VO2 always is going to go back close to baseline even, depending on how slow you go. So you'll never reap the benefits of reaching a higher VO2 earlier on in the latter intervals in the workout, because you'll always go back to uh, to the first, to square one, I guess. So starting starting from baseline every time, rather than keeping the VO2 slightly elevated during rest intervals. So even though you're running as fast or faster in the work intervals, you're not necessarily getting the same benefits as you could if your rest intervals were a bit shorter in that situation. However, I would say that this second scenario is uh, is preferable to the first scenario. So it's better that you have slightly longer, slightly too long uh, rest intervals, I would say, compared to, to too short. Because you, you don't want to fail the workout and not accumulate the time at intensity or while just getting through the workout in the first place is something that you don't want to do because then you're absolutely not going to gain the benefits. However, even if you are losing out on on some of that early elevated VO2 in your intervals because of slightly too long rest intervals, you're still going to get a fair amount of good work at high intensity and at high VO2 in if your intervals are longer, meaning you can always go hard in those intervals. So that's not the worst thing that could happen, even if it's uh, not not absolutely ideal. So to answer your question, though, directly, that was a bit of a background and theory. Uh, I think that most coaches, and uh, myself included, work with specified recovery durations or rest interval durations. In some situations, it might be work-rest cycles. So for example, in swimming, like starting on two minutes. So that means you swim and you rest and you start every time the clock hits two minutes. Uh, so it's the reason for this, rather than trying to go to a certain heart rate value, is it's much more practical and easier to work with and probably just as effective, if not more effective. For example, with the heart rate example, on a hot day, your heart rate may decrease very, very slowly between intervals, intervals no matter how slow you go in those rest intervals. So you might end up doing a, a very different workout if you need to really wait for it to go down to a certain level. There is a bit of research on uh, on rest intervals and uh, what the most effective ways uh, to to do and design rest interval durations are. And actually, I distinctly remember reading one study that found that uh, that basing the rest intervals on heart rate recovery, as you suggest in your uh, suggestion, so letting heart rate drop to a certain value, was more effective than using a set time in that particular study. Uh, however, unfortunately, I couldn't find it uh, right now, no matter how I searched. So, And I haven't seen any other study to replicate it, and uh, I only know the one. So uh, yeah, uh, you'll just have to trust me that there is some evidence to support that. Uh, I would say, though, that without doing a systematic review of the subject right now, I have looked at quite a bit of research and, uh, and have looked at it before and also right now. And uh, my interpretation, my understanding based on, on reading quite a lot about this and what has been done on the topic is that we 
don't need to overcomplicate things, as uh, as I said earlier. Steven Seiler is an example of somebody who has done great research in this area, and he has found this specifically to be true and talked about it on some podcasts. Uh, we didn't talk about it when he was on on here, but he's talked about that on other podcasts, that uh, it's quite simple, really. It doesn't really matter if you rest for one and a half, two or three minutes between your two-minute intervals necessarily, or if you rest for two or five minutes between your 10-minute intervals. Uh, so it's it's pretty much all the same at least within certain boundary conditions, I guess. Uh, so so that's what most research shows, that there, there hasn't really been much research to, to show that there's a massive difference in using one type of system or one specific duration for a specific workout to be, uh, to be massively better than another. Uh, so the nuances to this are on the higher intensity side. So uh, the higher the intensity, the more important it becomes to not get things way too wrong. Again, we don't need to overcomplicate things, but we shouldn't get things way too wrong. So we should pay a bit more attention there. So zone five, for example, this is where it starts to become a little bit sensitive. For example, I wouldn't recommend doing five minute rest intervals between your two minute work intervals. And as we go above zone five, we go to zone six to anaerobic type intervals and uh, and neuromuscular intervals. That's where it can become even more important uh, and uh, in particular to make sure that we get enough recovery if we are trying to build anaerobic capacity or or build sprint power, for example. Uh, so, uh, But other than that, when we are at threshold or below threshold, that's when it really doesn't matter much whether we're doing two minutes or five minutes or ten minutes. Uh, so, uh, so that's to give you an idea of, of uh, the principles here. To give you some guidelines for rest interval durations, uh, this, these are the guidelines that I'm, work, that I'm working with. And uh, I tend to think in terms of work to rest ratios. So for example, if we have a work to rest ratio of two to one and we have 10 minute intervals, then that means that the work interval is 10 minutes and the rest interval is five minutes. So for VO2 max type workouts, so five workouts, uh, I tend to work with one to one to two to one ratios. But in practice, I would go say that I go for one-to-one at least 90% of the time for myself and for my athletes. It's rare that I stray from that. And in terms of threshold, so moving down a bit in the intensity, I go for two-to-one to four-to-one. So for example, a 12-minute threshold interval workout could have recoveries between three minutes up to six minutes by that guideline, which I think sounds reasonable. Uh, for sweet spot and sub-threshold, uh, it's sort of the same, probably skewed towards that 4 to 1 work-to-rest ratio, so slightly shorter uh, shorter recoveries because the intensity goes down a little bit. If we go up in, in the intensity zones, so we go past VO2 max, we go to anaerobic uh, intervals that are, they last usually 20 seconds to, to a minute or so, then the work-to-rest ratios would be 1 to 1, all the way up to one to four, so potentially doing uh, doing thirty seconds of very hard anaerobic uh, anaerobic efforts and then resting for two minutes, and it could even be more. To be honest, now thinking about it, this is typical sprint interval training, twenty to thirty second sprints, all out efforts. Uh, when in research, at least, what uh, the work to rest ratios that have been used or the protocol protocols that have been used are typically 30 seconds on and four or five minutes rest. So there would be a one to 10 race work rest ratio or something something like that. So so that's that gives you an idea when we go to the anaerobic side, how much it's ways to really getting enough recovery. 
So that's especially important when we train uh, the capacity, so anaerobic capacity. However, if we are training, this is not that useful for triathletes necessarily, but we have a lot of cyclists listening as well. So if you are training utilization of capacity, so how much of your anaerobic capacity can you actually call upon in races? Sometimes called anaerobic power refers to how much you can use of your anaerobic capacity then you would go for those slightly shorter work-to-rest ratios or so one-to-one to one-to-two perhaps and not have massive recoveries because you're not trying to improve how much anaerobic power you can produce. You're trying to make it repeatable. So some people like to use the term repeatability as well for, for this. I guess it's it's all about more race specificity as well. It's, it's just an example of, of training going from capacity to, to power. And then finally, for your maximum power or your sprint power, your 10 second type efforts, then you just simply need a full recovery. So five plus minutes typically. So that's, uh, that's it. Thank you for your question, Michael. And uh, let's move on to the next one, which is from Sasha in Switzerland. And uh, Sasha writes, I'm not sure the following has ever been covered on the podcast. Is there any ideal fat and muscle percentages for middle and long distance athletes? Are there any benchmarks from the pros available? Are these transferable to age group athletes? Thank you, Sasha, for your question. So uh, regarding long distance, I'm going to stray a bit from that and just talk triathlon in general, because there's a great paper that I have talked about before in episode 113, when I talked about uh, body composition for triathletes. And that paper is called reference values for body composition and anthropometric measurements in athletes and i'm actually proud of myself because i never get anthropometric right on the first try but now i did so there you go maybe practice does make perfect uh, either way so this uh, paper they actually invested investigated multiple sports not just triathlon but i'm just going to read the triathlon uh, part of things here for runners listening in, you can go and see, look at the athletic side of things. I don't think that they investigated cycling, though. I may be mistaken, so so worth having a look for cyclists. But it should be similar to triathletes, I would say, for uh, for the cyclists. Okay, so on the triathlon side of things, they included they had six female athletes and thirty male thirty male athletes, and uh, they were aged. The mean ages were twenty one and twenty three respectively and so they were young young elite athletes and uh, let's see here just reading through the tables uh, where we are next so the body composition of these were the average uh, the mean weight was 58 kilos for the females and if you are used to pounds i haven't converted this but just multiply by 2.2 and that's how you get two pounds uh, for the males the mean weight was 66 kilos and the heights were 168 centimeters for the female. Those are uh, actually surprisingly tall females, perhaps. I'm, I'm not quite sure. It, I guess it depends on which country this study was carried out in, because that I do not remember. The males were 176 centimeters on average. And the BMI, so this is where we start to get talking about the body composition metrics was on average at 20.4 for the female athletes and for the male athletes we have 21.3 so slightly higher uh, due to the higher muscle mass and they also measured a lot of skin folds and including the sum of seven skin fold uh, that uh, probably doesn't mean a lot to most listeners if you're a nutritionist or dietitian you might know what this means but for most athletes so i'll just read it through quickly 86 uh, millimeters for the female athletes 
and uh, 50 millimeters for the male athletes. Uh, but the body fat percentage, and this was measured by DEXA scans, which means that it is uh, quite a lot higher than if these athletes stood on an impedance scale that you can buy in wherever, uh, order on Amazon and have at your home, they would probably show much lower values of body fat compared to the DEXA scan. Uh, but the DEXA scan is the gold standard. So this is really, uh, really good, good data. Uh, the female athletes had an average body fat percentage of 20 and the male athletes had an average percentage of 12. Uh, so, uh, so that's it for the short course uh, elite female and male athletes. For long-distance athletes, I haven't found on the elite side any peer-reviewed data. Anecdotally, I would say that long-distance athletes have a slightly higher body fat percentage, or at least they would be very well-served well to have it, actually, because they're doing even more training than the short-course athletes. So it's just a safeguard to not run into trouble for a number of reasons, but in particular, energy availability is a big one. And uh, somebody who has been quite outspoken about this, the weight debate, so to say, in the past is Chris McCormack, uh, Ironman world champion a couple of times. And uh, he is obviously very well known, Maka, if uh, you haven't heard of him. Uh, but he has an article that I will link to. It's a very good article, actually, uh, about this uh, weight and body composition debate. And he says in, says in that article that he, when he was racing ITU, so short course uh, racing, his rate weight was 165 pounds or 75 kilos. And, uh, but he, when he moved to long course, he kept failing in Kona and not reaching his potential. And then finally, he started to focus on his weight from a different perspective and not just being as light as possible. And in the summer of 2005, they decided to add 8% of body weight to him. So he started the next season going from 165 pounds to 182 pounds or 82.5 kilos. So that's uh, a seven and a half kilo increase or a 17, yes, 17 pound increase. And uh, he writes, and I quote, my body liked the extra weight. My recovery was much faster and it was a lot easier to deliver the strength specific workouts in the early season. We found instant success. I won Ironman Australia for the fifth time with my fastest run on the course, 244.14, and again ran a 241 in Germany to win my third challenge Roth under the eight hour mark. We had added nearly eight pounds to my racing weight. I was now racing Ironmans at 171 pounds. I posted my first ever performance in Hawaii at the end of the year. I guess that, that means the first ever good performance in Hawaii. Uh, running the fastest marathon of the day with a 247. We'd started to understand the weight puzzle and how gaining and losing weight effectively could be my biggest asset. More importantly, I was able to solidify in my own head that my Ironman racing weight was higher than I had imagined. So that's some really good, uh, insightful words from Maka that uh, I found that article fascinating and I encourage you to read the whole thing. Another example, anecdotal case study from the long course scene is Lionel Sanders. He did a very recent video on YouTube, uh, what I eat in a day. I'll link to that as well. And his focus clearly is to make sure that he doesn't lose any weight because it would be coming off him, but he's just eating to stay at a certain weight and really focusing on doing so. And if you've been following Lionel for some time, you know that in the past he's made mistakes in experimenting with different diets and getting way too lean and uh, not performing, probably because of just very poor energy availability. But now he's, he's, I guess, realized that and, and he's focusing on keeping his weight on rather than, uh, than losing it. So 
as I said, there's not a lot of peer-reviewed data if or not no, no peer-reviewed data from the elite side of things in long-distance uh, triathlons. But I did find some research papers with age groupers from long-course triathlons. And in particular, there seems to be one study done at Ironman Zurich in 2007. And a number of papers came from that uh, study. And the one that I'll cite and the link to includes uh, and cite data from and link to is titled Upper Body Skin Fold Thickness is related to race performance in male Ironman triathletes. So just briefly summarizing here what they found in this study, they had as the subjects 27 male age groupers, uh, mean age 39 years old, and 16 female athletes, mean age 37 years old. Uh, they calculated body fats actually based on the skin fold measure measurements. There is a formula that takes the sum of seven skin fold which has been validated against DEXA. So it's, of course, fairly good, but obviously not quite the same as direct DEXA scan measurements. So uh, keep that in mind that the body fat percentages here are not directly comparable, I would still say, even though they are good, but they're not directly comparable to the ones that I cited earlier from the elite athletes that were measured actually in the with a DEXA scan. Anyway, for the male athletes here, the mean weight was 78 kilos uh, at 178 centimeters. So the BMI was 24.3. That's roughly two units higher than, uh, than for the elite athletes that we talked about earlier. And for the female athletes, the mean weight was 60 kilos at 166 centimeters. So the same height pretty much and 21.5 uh, at as BMI. And that was, if I recall correctly, just, just looking back here. Uh, so the female athletes earlier had a BMI of 21.3, so very similar. The male athletes had 20.4. So the female athletes' age groupers were already similar to the elite in terms of BMI. The male athletes were a bit higher on the BMI scale. And the sum, they have some of eight skin folds, unfortunately. So we can't compare that to the sum of seven in the previous study. However, the body fat percentage was 14.4% for the males and 22.8% for the female. And again, if we compare, it was 20 for the female for the elite athletes in the other study and 11.9 for the male athletes, but measured by direct DEXA scan. So, uh, yeah, I think probably if these athletes in the, the age groupers had been measured directly in the DEXA scan, probably their results would have been slightly higher, slightly higher body fat percentages. But it goes to show that actually the difference isn't isn't that big in this sample. Now, we don't really know exactly how advanced these athletes were. Uh, of course, it's. Uh, I think that I read that the, the way that this study worked is that Ironman sent out an invitation to participants to take part in this study. And I think just intuitively that it would make sense that this kind of study it attracts the high level athletes that think that they are lean and they want to understand how lean they are and uh, and how that correlates to their race performance rather than ones that aren't necessarily as lean or or as advanced i guess so so that gives you probably these are more intermediate to advanced age groupers now, if we look at the correlations between the, the body composition and the race performance, which is what this study ended up doing, on the male side of things, they found correlations between their skin fold measurements, so the, the sum of eight, and also between the sum of the upper body skin folds only, uh, between those two measurements and the total race time, so a better skin fold value, so smaller 
millimeter value means faster race time. There was a, a strong cor correlation there. And also they find a, found the same thing with percentage, the body fat percentage. So lower body fat percentage meant faster race time. And actually when they broke this apart into comparing the different disciplines, swimming, biking, and running, these uh, body composition metrics were correlated with statistical significance, I should say, uh, with how fast these male athletes were cycling, but it wasn't correlated with swimming or running. So those, the significant correlations with the total race time were mostly due to an improved bike speed with the improved body composition. With the same analysis of the female athletes, however, no such correlations could be found at all. Not a single statistically significant correlation, which is interesting. So uh, the authors of this study conclude that there was a relationship between BMI and the sum of eight skinfold uh, thicknesses and the sum of upper body skinfold thicknesses and the percent body fat uh, with the total race time in male Ironman triathletes. However, for female athletes, there was no, there were no correlations. So uh, just to summarize my thoughts on this, keep in mind, especially guys, that this improved race performance is to a point. So at a certain point, it will start to become a negative correlation rather than a positive one. So we have obviously a range of body fat here uh, with the mean uh, body fat in this subject or this sample being 14.8%. And the standard deviation was 4.8. So it stands to reason that somebody who is below 14% is going to be faster than somebody who is uh, just around, right around 20%. But the question is, do you really need to get below 11 or 10? Probably not, considering that the elite athletes were at 12, at least based on DEXA scans. So that's, uh, that's something to keep in mind that, that we are comparing here what happens when you go from somewhere in the high teens to the low teens in terms of body fat percentage rather than what happens when you go from 11 and 12 to 7 and 8. The result if you go from 11 and 12 to 7 and 8 is not necessarily good. So uh, so that's it. And uh, to answer your question, Sasha, uh, about whether this is comparable, whether, whether age groupers can use the benchmarks from elite athletes as, um, as benchmarks for themselves, I think that if we're talking about advanced age group racing, like the World Championships, whether it be short or long course, I'd say yes, uh, the benchmark established by pros would apply to age groupers, uh, because I'm sure that the fastest guys in this particular Ironman Zurich study as well had similar numbers, body composition numbers to what the pros had. Uh, because any age groupers, grouper who trains 10 hours per week or more for sure does enough training to achieve the body fat, fat percentages and the, the muscle mass that the pros have. Uh, it, the lack of training is not a limiter for that by any means. Uh, the thing that I would uh, like to add here and end with actually is that the leanest pros are probably way too lean and they're not the ones that we should model. So perhaps we should model the pros that are more in the middle of the, uh, of the leanness range, so to say. And, and also another thing, some of the very lean pros that are successful, because I'm sure there are many of them, but some of them, not everybody, but some of them might be successful in spite of how, just how lean they are rather than because of it. Uh, so I think it's healthy to keep some perspective in that regard and not chase, uh, being super lean, because I, I don't think that that's going to help performance. I think Maca actually has 
has it spot on in his article, which is why I'm going to finish off with a final excerpt from uh, his article. And he writes, I am naturally a bigger athlete compared to most other professionals. Bigger athletes have more weight to gain and lose, and the adaptation times at these weights are much longer. I think that of everything we learned from coach Sutton, this was the most important. His belief that the lower muscle mass of a woman and the way they carry body fat made weight control a more important puzzle to success in female racing. The larger athlete relied more heavily on strength and power to deliver results. And if you lost too much of that through rapid weight loss or incorrect adaptation times to new weights, you either broke down, got sick or lost your natural strength. So that's very fascinating. And what I want to point out here is not... Uh, Coach Sutton, Brett Sutton here, uh, believed apparently that uh, with female, it was very important to manipulate weights, which is contrary to what we saw in the study, where there were no correlations between body fat and race times. So that's not the thing that I was interested in in, in this excerpt, but it was actually what Mac had talked about with, with that. If you lose too much of uh, of your weight, then you lose a lot of your strength and power, and and you rely on that to deliver results. So... So to sum up, to a point, improved body composition uh, can definitely give you improved results. And uh, in particular, this seems to be true for male athletes. Uh, but also, when you are getting to that range where you are already at a good body composition, then marginal gains in body composition is maybe not are maybe not worth chasing. I would not recommend doing that because they might not lead to any gains at all in performance, they will definitely add greater risk for injuries and illnesses. And uh, and actually, what you might end up losing some strength and power and having decreased performances as a result. Uh, in particular, at, at long-distance triathlon, this uh, this is probably even more important than, than short distance, although I wouldn't claim that they are massively different. I think that, uh, like with training, the main principles are the same here as well. So that's a wrap for this week's Q&A. I hope that you enjoyed it and found it useful. And uh, I want to thank you again to everybody who has been rating and leaving reviews. We're up to 252 written reviews and 490 ratings. So please help us push for those next milestones. Nearly there for 500 ratings, which is uh, fantastic. Please rate five stars if you like the show. Uh, But some way to go to get 500 reviews. So uh, please write something, even if it's just fantastic podcast when you leave that that rating so i want to read a review that came came in and it is uh, from celestine j in the united states who writes i'm not a triathlete yet i'm not a triathlete yet i love this podcast Uh, five stars i don't own a bike i am a weak swimmer i have done one all-female sprint triathlon when i was in my 20s and did the backstroke stroke because i was hyperventilating i was last out of the water i made up for it on the run I am a competitive runner and love to learn the science and research behind endurance training and successful racing. Your podcast is very interesting and covers many topics that are valuable in my quest to stay competitive while aging gracefully. Thank you. Thank you, Celestine. Really appreciate it. It's uh, great to hear. And I do hope that other endurance athletes than just triathletes find this podcast because so much is directly transferable and general for all endurance sports it's not just triathlon but running and cycling and swimming Uh, they everybody every endurance athlete can listen to to endurance podcasts from those other disciplines as well finally big thanks to our sponsors 
First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Uh, take their free online sweat test to get an individualized hydration strategy for your next race. And try out their product for free with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all on word, all caps. Or get 20% off your entire order with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW20, valid through the end of August. And thank you to Roka for sponsoring the show. Uh, Roka is where you should go if you are looking for wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. Use the promo code TTS, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep trading smart and keep loving triathlon.